I know it's that time of year again, tax season. But getting your taxes done by a real person, not an automated website, makes it so much easier. But how do you even find the time to actually meet with a real accountant? That's why I'm excited to tell you about a fully virtual tax preparation experience called Relax Tax by Sagan Financial Group. Just submit your tax information safely and securely online to be reviewed and processed by one of their tax specialists. No unnecessary appointments, no calls unless you request one, completely on your terms. And best of all, listeners of Crime Over Wine get 10% off Relax Tax by Sagan Financial Group. Just go to relaxedtax.com, that's R-E-L-A-X-E-D-T-A-X.com, and use coupon code CRIMEOVERWINE in the tax client intake form. Sagan Financial Group is a local Chattanooga business serving all 50 states, and part of the proceeds will go directly to supporting this show. Again, that coupon code is CRIMEOVERWINE for 10% off Relax Tax by Sagan Financial Group. Welcome to Crime Over Wine Weekly. It's Sunday, February 11th. I'm Michelle Heron. Here are your crime headlines. Testimony continues in a New Hampshire courtroom where a man is charged in the murder of his daughter. Prosecutors believe Adam Montgomery killed his five-year-old daughter, Harmony, in December of 2019. Even though she wasn't reported missing for nearly two years, her body has never been found. The woman who murdered Grammy Award-winning singer Selena is set to appear in a new docuseries. The two-part limited series titled Selena and Yolanda, The Secrets Between Them, will feature interviews with Yolanda Salvador from prison and never-before-released documents and recordings. Salvador is set to be released from prison next year, nearly 30 years after the 23-year-old singer was murdered. The series will air February 17th and 18th on Oxygen True Crime. 20 years after a New Hampshire woman's disappearance, investigators have released an age-progressed photo of what she might look like today. Mara Murray was a 21-year-old nursing student at the University of Massachusetts Amherst when she mysteriously vanished. Her car was involved in a minor crash and investigators believe she spoke to a citizen at the scene, but she was never seen or heard from since. Hope by releasing the age progress photo, it will bring renewed interest in the case. And this week on Crime Over Wine Weekly, he's been dubbed the memory card murderer. Brian Smith's double murder trial started this week nearly five years after he's accused of recording himself beating and strangling a woman in a hotel room in Alaska. Hear what Brian has to say in his own words from behind bars. A cross-country cold case. Investigators in California are helping solve a homicide with ties to Tennessee. How they were able to identify Jane Doe 23 years after discovering her remains. But first, Let's get to the good part. Let's get to the wine. I have the best partners in crime with me, Liam Collins and Heather Holly. They're here. Hey, guys. Hello, hello, hello. Episode two. Look at us go. So excited. It's just going to get better with time, just like wine. Correct. Absolutely. We're going to age very well. Speaking of wine, today we are sipping on Simply Chardonnay. It has bright aromas of fresh apple, pear, and tropical fruit on the nose. The mouthfeel is round, soft, and clean with a broad, lush mid-palate. Prominent flavors of apple and lemon shine through, all supported by a crisp acidity and clean finish. I have to tell you, I'm I'm very hit and miss with Chardonnay. I've had some yeah. really, really good ones. I've had some really, really bad ones, so I was a little bit worried, but this is a good Chardonnay. I really like it. Plus one in the Michelle column. Love that. I have not taken my first sip yet, so let's see what I think. Ooh, okay. Okay, Simply. This is, this is, this is a simple Chardonnay. I'm into this one, actually, also. I usually, because I feel, I hear you, Michelle, some, some Chardonnays are lean way too much on the buttery side, on the way too much on the oaky side. This is a really good balance, actually. If I didn't know that this was a Chardonnay, like, I would not guess that this is a Chardonnay. It does give a little bit more Pinot Grigio than Chardonnay, I feel like. At least traditional mm-hmm. traditional Chardonnay, I feel like. I don't know how my um, 
feedback is here because things have tasted a little <laughs> off. This is really bland to me. I don't love it. It is smooth, um, easy to drink, mm-hmm. but flavor wise, um, it's boring. Yeah, well, it's definitely a, it's a lighter. Thanks for the honesty there, Heather. <laughs> um, it's lighter. It's lighter than um than most Chardonnays. I feel like are like it's it's a much subtler chardonnay which i appreciate because i don't like i don't like big flavors in in whites i like big flavors in reds i don't i like a real i like a real um simple um white um not like we're gonna bring that back every every chance we get um but i like i like a very um you know i like one that a clean finish right like i like a clean finish in in a white wine that this is definitely a cleaner cleaner smoother simpler white i feel like the tiktok girlies who do the the clean aesthetic this this is probably right up your alley. It is like, right. it is, but it's not. I need a little more um, adventure. This is fair. Listen, and that's why, you know, I do feel like the three of us have very different wine tastes too, which is kind of like, I think like a, um, you know, a, um, a accidental part of why this podcast is so cool. Um, because I don't really think that, that, you know, I, I didn't realize how, how, how vast our, our wine, um, wine tastes are. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's just going to happen. Sometimes, you know, I feel like with, with the wine kind of, kind of goes, you know, you never really know what you're going to get. And so that's kind of, you never know what you're going to get on Crumb of Wine Weekly either. So also, so I have to, so I've talked about, um, we talked about a real crazy case on this week on, on Crime Over Wine, um, on Wednesday. Um, what are y'all thinking? Cause I have wild thoughts. Um, and I, and I just, I need to know what y'all, what y'all, what goes, what's going through y'all mind when it comes to Yasmin Akri. So I was listening to it right, right before coming on here to, to do this. And I really feel for Yasmin. Like, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I moved around a lot when I was younger for, for different reasons it was because my dad was in the military but i i really relate in like understanding what it's like to be uprooted from everything that you know yeah. and go to a completely different community that's different you don't know anyone you know and so it kind of even makes someone a little bit even more vulner- vulnerable because they don't know anyone you really only mm-hmm. rely on you know the people that are immediately around you And then just also like, I just feel like everyone failed her. Yeah. You know what I mean? In in those first few days that she went missing, it was like, people aren't telling the truth. Police are considering it a runaway. Like it just kind of, you know, I just, Mm -hmm. my heart really goes out to her. You know, because you're talking about, you know, people failing her. That's 100% the truth. Um, you know, they're, you know, failed from, you know, f- long before she went missing, um, mm-hmm. in my in my opinion. But um, specifically when she did go missing, you know, and, and I have to bring it up um, because we talked about it briefly on Crime Over Wine. But, um, you know, that we're talking, we're in Black History Month this month. Um, and so the reason I did that case um, was because it felt like a, you know, real dark, you know, unfortunate part of black history, right? Where there's a lot of these cases and, you know, again, acknowledging that we're all three of us are white, um, you know, we're not, not, none of the three of us are people of color. And so um, I, you know, but I, you know, there are just so many cases where um, the attention just isn't there, right? Like the, like the, you know, where, where people make assumptions about you, you know, and, and it's happens, feels like it happens way more often with, with young women of color that it's like, oh, you must've gone out with a boyfriend. You must've, you must've just been irresponsible, whatever, but she was a good kid. She spent, you know, she, she grew up a, a, you know, an aunt, like the salutatorian of her eighth grade class. She grew up a spelling bee champion. Like she, and, and there's no, there was no reason that her life should have gone the way it did, except for the fact that, like you said, Michelle, so many people failed her along the way. And unfortunately that, that does, that happens a lot, a lot of times that it just doesn't even get reported. You know what I mean? Right. Um, right. It's just, it's heartbreaking. And that's why it is important to stop and to think and to make sure that there is fair representation in cases right. that are covered. Right. Absolutely. And then, I mean, not just failing her nonstop, the system, foster care, law enforcement, so on. Like, would her investigators have taken her case more seriously and found those journals earlier? Mm. Or were they just bad investigators, period? Could that have happened to anyone? Mm. Like, it was... 
a flawed investigation from day one, but then those journals that held key evidence, those weren't found by police at all. Like, right. Why, why did that take so long? Did you really look through her room? It's not like it was that big of a room. It was in the basement. Right. Right. Yeah. And that whenever that kind of thing happens, my brain always goes to, well, what else did you miss? If you missed the the thing that that showed a direct connection between, um, you know, a victim and a, you know, a, you know, sex predator um, that who lived upstairs um, and you didn't know about that, you know, you know, you barely as far as as far as I can tell. You didn't even know that he was living upstairs, or if you did, you just you know you just looked the other way or didn't make that connection, which just doesn't make any sense to me. And so, and again, it just makes you wonder, like, what else have you missed? What else did you miss that that you know that all that that you know could have found you know to this day could have found Yasmin? Um, if if we if we you know what what else is out there that could point to exactly what happened to her and who did it? Well, I think so much we could talk about. Um, you know, with regards to Yasmin, um, again, go listen to that episode if you haven't yet, because it it's hard to, to for me to imagine and hard for me to feel this, but important to talk about, um, and important again to talk about with with through the lens of race. On just the other side of this commercial break, we're going to tell you about some cases that are making headlines this week. But first, this Saturday, February seventeenth, marks six years since Ryan Stuka went missing in Sun Peaks, British Columbia. Call the Kamloops Royal Canadian Mounted Police at 250-828-3000 if you know anything and listen to episode 53 of Crime Over Wine to hear all of Ryan's story. Hello, Crime Over Wine listeners. I am Rachel. And I'm Heather. We are the hosts of Like Mother, Like Murder. We bring you the good, the badass, and the crime. Each week, we bring you stories from missing and murdered to survivors and women who empower you. And of course, some mom talk sprinkled in. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts at Like Mother, Like Murder. And give us a follow on social media so that we can say hi. Okay, love you, bye. Okay, love you, bye. Get ready for that big test with Study.com. Study.com offers learning materials and test prep, even LSAT study prep guides for all of my legal nerds listening. Unfortunately, there aren't any wine study guides, and believe me, I did check. Listeners can get 30% off their first three months of any subscription level using the promo code CRIMEOVERWINE. Again, that's promo code CRIMEOVERWINE, no spaces, for 30% off your first three months at Study.com. Learn faster, stay motivated, study smarter with our sponsor, Study.com. Well, turning now to news of the week, I have a sad update to share with you guys about Darius Appia. He went missing out of Fredericksburg, Virginia back in January. We just talked about him in the first episode. A volunteer helping his family search for him found his body in a creek about a mile away from where canine search dogs last found his scent. Now, the family believes that authorities didn't take the search seriously and didn't search hard enough. The police department says their search and rescue efforts were the largest that they've ever deployed in a missing person's case, using helicopters to search 400 acres and four miles downriver, drones, canines, and multiple agencies and jurisdictions. Now, it could take several weeks or even months for Darius Appiah's autopsy to be complete, but in the meantime, investigators are meeting with co-workers and friends to see if they might have any information about what happened to him. Remember, he went missing after picking up some food after getting off of a shift from work. Um, his car was found in a, in a park nearby, and his remains were found not far from where his car was found. So his family, though, visibly upset, and they've been you know, talking to the media and talking online about why they're upset. And I I think, you know, this can even go back to like 
what we were just talking about with Yasmin's case and, you know, people of color and things like that, you know, his family is saying if we found his remains, you know, a mile away from where his scent was mm-hmm. last picked up, why like were did they search hard enough? Um, and I, I think that is a valid um a valid point that they are making. Uh, so I do see both sides. It, it does seem like they did put invest a lot of money and resources into trying to find him, but did they do enough? You know, the family here doesn't, doesn't seem to think so. Yeah. And you know, so great point there, Michelle. And, and, and it's unfortunate, I guess that we already have, um, you know, this kind of update on a case that we've, that we've talked about. Um, so thanks for providing an update for us too, but, um, but boy, oh boy, Michelle, um, if you think that there's, that this is, that there's something going on here with how, um, how closely they found, you know, um, uh, Darius's body from where they were searching, um, you're going to have, a, we're going to have a lot to talk about for the case that I have for you on Wednesday. Um, um, so hold your hat for sure. Um, and so we're definitely going to bring, want to bring this back up next week. Um, but uh, you know, I, I, you know, again, there's not really, I feel like not really much to say, unfortunately about this case uh, from where we're at right now, only because, um, beyond that, only because we don't really know exactly what happened, right. In terms of, cause we, we need the autopsy to kind of tell us. Um, and so I'm, I just am really curious to know about the condition of his body and like, what, like, are we suspecting foul play? Are we, you know, just thinking that it was a bad accident? Did he do something to himself potentially? Um, you know, again, there's a lot of questions that we just, that we just don't know, um, the answers to until we get that autopsy back, unfortunately, huh? Yeah. And you know, another another piece of information that just makes the situation even more heartbreaking is you know, his remains were found in like a creek. So there was water and uh, um, he had been missing for about two weeks, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, but if you can imagine if his body had been in that water for that long, you know, but the bo- water starts that decomposition yeah. process and that's evidence, you know. And the funeral home called the family and said that because his remains had been in the water for so long, they recommended not doing an open casket. So, I Mm. mean, it it makes you wonder, did what type of evidence got washed away in that creek? Yeah. And I have to say, too, um, to a certain extent, like, because I see this, you know, a lot of times, and I'm sure y'all would agree with this from cases that y'all have covered, too, um, where it's like the family always neat like it, it feels it just feels like like a lot of times in these types of cases like the family just really needs someone to blame and who could blame them for needing someone to blame too right and so um you know certainly even if this is you know bad accident or maybe something less suspicious um you know it like it it feels very natural for for me to say that the family is looking at the poli- at the police and saying even if even if everything was fine even if we're not looking for for a potential suspect here um which maybe we are maybe we are and I just don't know um you know at the very least like you could have found him earlier you know what i mean and so but like what like and so i always have to say on the back end on the other side of that is like like would that have made much of a difference you know again if we're talking about something a little bit less suspicious like who knows, right? But but also, it's a lot of what ifs in these kinds of cases. At the same time, I think the next big thing is, of course, just waiting for that autopsy to come out, which it sounds like like people are going to be looking at very intensely. Um, and I think that's really, I mean, that's that's the like you know that's the next big thing here. I mean that that just that I mean otherwise, like it's a lot of um, speculation around like who who did like who who may have done what, who may have not done enough, like. Um, you know, if he, unfortunately, right, if he walked in the woods and, and had an accident and walked in that creek and died, you know, I mean, regardless of whether, of whether they found him two weeks ago or, or today or this week, I mean, it wouldn't have made much of a difference. And the, those interviews with, you know, his coworkers and, and friends, you know, when, when you're mm. close to someone, you can tell when they're off a little bit, you know, um, you can tell in, in the things that someone might talk about, or you can just tell if something's bothering them. And like that can be really important to investigators at a time like this. Yeah. Well, and also I'll have to, I, I'll say something there, like almost, 
only because like what we're talking about before, right? Again, in the month that we're in, like, you know, like in, you know, the race that Darius was like, I wonder almost like if that was the truth, like would the family have, have shared that? You know what I mean? Because to me that almost, because when, when someone shares that kind of information, my fear would be that, oh, well, they're not going to take it. They're not going to like look for, look as intensely um, because, you know, if they have depression or if they're, if they're known to have these, to have these thoughts or or whatever. And so I wonder then if, um, if, you know, if, you know, that combined with, with them, with him being a black man, if that would have, you know, like maybe that maybe their thought process was let's just kind of keep any thoughts that he may have been having if he was even having them again. I'm just speculating here, but the point being is that like I could see of that thought combined with the fact that he was a black man, just making them think that oh well, let's just kind of keep all of that to ourselves because otherwise they may not take it as seriously. You know, I don't know. I, I that was all very speculative, I suppose. But like point being is that like I could see that 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 being the the family's thought process. Well, they. Back when he was reported missing, there was some sort of piece of information that made them rule that he was a critically missing person. So Mm, that mm -hmm. could be certain medication that he may have to take that, you know, if you miss a dose, that can be very bad. Um, And it it could also be, you know, frame of mind, kind of like what you were talking about, Liam. But there was some piece of information that elevated his his case to not just being a regular missing person, but what they called critical. Yeah, I forgot about that piece. Um, You're right about that. And so, again, that makes me think about things a little bit differently and more intensely. But still, man, yeah, lots to talk about there. Yeah, and and that could be... You know, if someone maybe um, suffers from seizures and maybe they they have to take their seizure medicine at a certain time every day. And if you miss a dose, that can be bad. Um, there's heart medication. There, there's lots, a whole variety of medications out there um, that can be critical in times like that when yeah. someone has. Gone. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that can mean a lot of things. That can mean a lot of different things. All right, Heather, what you got this week? Well, I will, I'm going to preface all of this with, there are a, a lot of details that aren't in here in what I'm going to say, just because mm-hmm. there's not enough time to cover everything that's already out about this case. Um, I'm going to share the story of Jennifer Dulos. The Connecticut woman vanished May 24th, 2019, after dropping her kids off at school. Her body has never been found, but a judge officially declared Dulos dead last October. Jennifer and Fotis Dulos got married in 2004, had five children together, and in 2017, she filed for divorce. That year, Jennifer also filed an emergency order for full custody of their kids, claiming her husband was showing, quote, intensifying, irrational, and threatening behavior. Jennifer said he threatened to kidnap their children if she didn't agree to his terms for the divorce and also claimed that he told her he had bought a gun that year. In the order, Jennifer said, quote, I know he will retaliate by trying to harm me in some way. Fortis denied the allegations and said Jennifer told their children she could have the mafia break their dad's legs. In the end, Jennifer's request was denied. Fast forward to May 2019, New Canaan police say Jennifer Dulos was last heard from while dropping her kids off at school. I believe Jennifer came home and where she faced a serious physical assault in her garage. Detectives found bloodstains and splatter there, and that belonged to Jennifer. Jennifer's SUV was later discovered at a nearby park, but Jennifer was nowhere to be found. A month later, police arrested Fotis Dulos and his girlfriend, Michelle Traconis. The pair was charged with tampering or fabricating evidence and hindering prosecution. Both pleaded not guilty. The couple was arrested again in September on a new charge of tampering with evidence and again pleaded not guilty. Connecticut State Police arrested Fotis at his home on January 7, 2020. He faces three new charges in the disappearance of his estranged wife, capital murder, murder, and kidnapping. Michelle Traconis and Kent Mawinney, an attorney friend of Fotis's, were charged with conspiracy to commit murder. Both pleaded not guilty. Fotis died by suicide just a few weeks later. ABC reports he left a handwritten note saying, quote, I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. 
A few months later, the pandemic hit, pausing the cases against Traconis Emma Winnie until this year. Michelle Traconis's trial is playing out right now. It started January 11th and continued through this week. During this time, her family has spoken to the media, maintaining her innocence. And this week, the state's key witness, a former employee of Fotis's, took the stand, testifying about comments he heard the pair make and Fotis urging him not to cooperate with police. The trial is still ongoing, so I'll be keeping an eye on any new developments and definitely sharing them with y'all. Man, I, you know, it's funny. So I'm from this area, um, you know, originally. And so I remember this playing out um, kind of like and it's it's a it's a crazy one. Right. Because there's just there's a lot of different layers here. Heather, do you and I don't remember this specifically, but do you know are all like all those charges about like because um, none of these are murder charges? Am I right? Not against the girlfriend and friend. Um, the husband, he ended up being charged with capital murder, murder and kidnapping um, before mm. taking his own life. Yeah. So I am curious, though, like, are are the like tampering charges and conspiracy charges? Are those re- those are related to um, Jennifer's case, though? Am I right? Yes, those those are all related. So the tampering with evidence goes back to surveillance video of what appears to be f- disposing of bags of clothes that are believed to be Jennifer's. Um, and investigators believe the girlfriend was in the car that they can be seen in that video. So there's there's video of them. Mm-hmm disposing of evidence and then how does this attorney fit in though? that part i'm not 100 percent sure like he's a friend and knew about the plans and helped them like and his and his trial hasn't started right now like right now they aren't having trial together they are still being tried mm. at this point interesting i wonder if they're trying to get them to turn you know mm. flip on each other that Possibly, would make it spicy and there was very little talk of, of Kent elsewhere. He was just kind of mentioned as a side note in the reporting I found. So I do need to do more digging on him specifically to see if they're offering him any mm. kind of deals or lesser charge or anything like that. Yeah, that would be wild if courtroom drama if he got up and testified against her too. But also, it kind of makes me sad too to think like, so if, if Otis is really the person responsible for Jennifer's death or disappearance, um, whatever it may be, I suppose, um, then it's kind of like, like the fact that he is not going to be held responsible for that. Like we're not in a murder trial right now is the point. No one's going to go to jail for, for, for Jennifer's disappearance or her death. If, if she really is dead. Yeah. And he reportedly died by suicide and left behind what is supposed to be a note. Um, and mm. I just, I don't understand the ch- to end your own life because you're innocent thought process that went yeah there i agree with that yeah that kind of made my head scratch a little bit too and also he didn't just say he was innocent he said everyone that they've charged were innocent so it's like he's, oh really he's sticking up for everyone and then yeah and you know i um i also know from um again from covering a lot of these types of cases that like you know the bodiless um the bodiless murderer trials are difficult right like i mean that's not an easy thing there's something really so uh, i'm actually about to come up with an episode about similar something similar and, and i interviewed an attorney who who or a prosecutor he was a prosecutor over the case at the time um who who may, came up with this like it was really kind of interesting but he he said specifically he was like you know it, like the the sniff test i suppose that he kind of goes with is if he's in the tr- in the courtroom and he says you know is trying to make the case about whether or not someone was still alive you know because they still haven't found the body you know or still haven't found them um is like they'll turn they'll turn to the jury and say um you know blah 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 you know and this person may or may not be still be alive and i know this because they're about to walk through the door right now and it's like whether or not those people turn and look at the door is like whether or not that's like the actual reasonable doubt because if they can can you know because if if you turn and look at the door then like there's some sort of reasonable doubt in there of like you know it's kind of you know courtroom tv show style thing but like so like sure um but like you know it's because that doesn't probably wouldn't pass too much in in real life 
courtroom TV or courtroom life. Um, but you know, the, if, if they all kind of turn and look at the door, then that's like the, the, the level of reasonable doubt that you, that you think that there's a possibility that they may still be alive at the end of, after everything you've heard. See, but if I was one of those jury members, I'm not gullible, but like, you're the authority, you're the attorney. If you're like mm-hmm. saying they're coming through the door, I'm like, what? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Am no, I that's being, fair. Is, am no, I that's, being... no, that's fair. But like, and and there certainly seems to be a lot of, you know, depend, you know, I think you called it a serious physical assault in the garage. So like, I'm assuming that means that there was a lot of blood. Um, And so I think that maybe that goes to show you that like the the intense you know, crime scene that we're talking about here. Yeah, and when the judge did officially pronounce her deceased, um she is legally dead. A judge has ruled mm. that she is dead, and it was because the injuries she likely sustained in that assault were likely not mm. survivable. Yeah. Mm. I I wonder do, do they have any like from what you've read Heather, do they have any like assumptions as to what he did with the body if he did indeed kill her? Um so the for the murder charges that affidavit it was reported there were details about, you know, how he did it. There was a time frame that, you know, he waited in the garage, zip tied her, assaulted her, put her in the trunk. Um but not necessarily they don't know she is. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Well, that trial. So trial's still ongoing, right? So, um, I'm again, like you said, you're you're gonna have to. This one's seems a little um, attention grabby for sure, and so I w- am very interested to see kind of how this trial plays out. You know, again, re- remarking here that um, this is not a murder trial. This is a conspiracy and a and a tampering trial. Correct. And then the arrest report just, yeah, does not have any indication of where she might be. Mm. So, okay, Liam, what do you have for this week? Oh, I am, I will gladly tell you what I have for y'all this week. Um, man, I can't believe I never heard of this case before, um, but it's a doozy. So buckle in guys um, and get that glass handy. You're, y'all are going to need it. Um, but the murder trial for accused murderer Brian Smith started this week, y'all. Brian is accused of torturing and strangling at least two women in Anchorage, Alaska. At least one of those women's murder was recorded on camera. In opening statements this week, prosecutors warned the jury they would see the video for themselves and they're supposed to start seeing that you know as of tomorrow while brian's attorneys argued the video alone could not be trusted his attorney said the sd card which contained the digital file of the video was stolen by another woman before it was turned over to police police say the woman transferred the video to the sd card from a cell phone but that cell phone could not be located even to this day the 52-year-old is being charged with 14 counts, among them first and second degree murder. Police say he killed two women, 30-year-old Kathleen Henry, whose murder was the one recorded on video, and 52-year-old Veronica Abuchuk, whose murder police say Brian later admitted to. A skull identified as Veronica's was found with a gunshot wound near a highway where Brian said that he left Veronica's body after shooting her. Kathleen's body was found in October of 2019 off of a completely different highway in Alaska. This week, Alaska's news source, a TV station in Anchorage, confirmed an 11-page handwritten letter sent to the TV station was written by Brian Smith himself from behind bars. The letter, confirmed by the State Department of Corrections as having been sent by Brian, complains of the video evidence being presented in his trial against him. Brian's murder trial is expected to continue well into March. And y'all, like, listen, as a couple of, as three reporters here, like, can you imagine, you know, open up your mailbox and getting a whole freaking letter from an accused murderer? Not me, and I don't want to. So can that be submitted as evidence now? Like, you know, that's a good question. I feel like probably yes, but I because the because the chain of custody there is kind of odd. But unless the if the if the Department of Corrections said like you know plainly that it was delivered from him, then then I feel like then that's enough to be like okay, yeah, like we can we could do this. But the the chain of custody is kind of is is still a little off considering that it was delivered you know to a reporter and to somebody else, and then and then hopefully turned into police. But also, I don't really know. I don't think that it said anything, you know, wildly different than the than the, the defense that 
that Brian's attorneys were going to present in trial anyways, from what I read, um, because all it said was that the, that the, that there's like questions about how valid this video is. And so jumping off of that, Liam, you know, he, he's got attorneys that are, that are going to present their, their defense, essentially that's their job. Um, So it sounds like to me, this letter is him wanting to get his side out there in what we like to call the court of public opinion, you know, Mm -hmm. because clearly this is making news headlines. So he wants to get his side out there. Um, So sometimes not, I'm not saying that I don't know Brian Smith. I don't know any, anything about him other than what you've just shared, but sometimes um, there are like personality disorders where, someone has to get their side out there. You know what I mean? Because normally if your case is going to trial, you want to protect your defense. You know, that's why your attorney doesn't want you going all over the place, telling everyone everything that you have to say, because you don't want the other side, which is the state or prosecutors. You don't want the other side to already make up, you know, their counter to what you're going to say. So that's why you want to protect your defense so that when the jurors hear that, they hear your side of the story, that prosecutors don't already have like a rebuttal to that. So it it is interesting. I, I bet you his attorneys did not advise him to send that letter. Because now, think oh, about it, yeah. his attorneys <laughs> have to, you know figure out how how are they gonna handle this now you know what i mean oh yeah they're pissed i'm confident in that um for sure um but to that point too though too because i'm thinking about okay well what that look like it to present this kind of evidence in court and then i'm also because because you don't have because you have the right not to um not to testify against yourself you have the fifth amendment right to not you know not to you know incriminate your yourself and so therefore you don't have to um you don't have to testify in your own trial um in fact a lot of people would say don't fucking testifying your own trial um and so it's like point being to that is that i almost wonder as a and and i'm not a lawyer um obviously but i almost wonder from a prosecutor standpoint like like this seems like the best way to kind of get around that right where you can kind of use this as like as as them you know prosecuted or or as brian testifying in your own trial like here is in his own words it's 11 pages long probably more than they would have gotten if they they put him up on the on the witness stand um and so i I, as a prosecutor you kind of i feel like you kind of have to insert that into evidence and, and ask someone about it right well that's where i can see so they have several motion hearings before trials and that's kind of where they set the the guidelines like the rules of what evidence is allowed to be used and what evidence is not. I could see in one of those pretrial hearings, um, the state arguing, well, no, because if you're going to defend yourself, if you're going to testify in your own defense, you open yourself up to cross-examination. And that's Mm -hmm. normally why Mm -hmm. people don't take the stand in their own defense, because if you're going to be cross-examined by the state, by prosecutors, they, they are going to do everything they can to try and break you down. They're also going to ask you about a lot of things that might make you not look so good. So, mm-hmm. and, and it, that's the, those are the same rules for, you know, a state's witness. The defense has the same opportunity to cross-examine. And right. that's kind of where you'll see like the questioning get really heated and, and things like that. I think that's why some people like watching trials, but I could see in this instance of the letter, the state arguing, this is his workaround to not be cross-examined. Mm. You know, you, mm. you don't get to defend yourself, but not be cross-examined. That's not fair. So mm. I could see a judge throwing that letter out and not even allowing it in the court, you know, but then at the same time, do you, do you want to taint the jury pool too? You know, it mm. depends on where the jury's going to come from. If you, if yeah. the jury comes from an outside community that may, that has no information, no idea about the case, then that's great. But, you know, if the jury pool is being picked from the same community and they watch the news and they may have heard of this, you know, that's also where the voir dire process comes in and they're asked, yeah. you know, do you know anything about the case? If you do, can you still come in and, and only listen to what's being 
um, presented to you in this courtroom, you know, that that's what, to me, that's what makes the entire process of, of jury trials interesting. Yeah. Well, and so to be clear too, so this trial's already began too. So um, all the process that you're, um, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. that you're talking about, about the pretrial hearings, those have already happened. This letter was sent you know, after the trial, I think it was the day of, if I remember correctly, the day of opening statements was when was when this news source published this article um, that that they received this letter. And so, you know, do it that way you will. Um, and but then there's also like the part of me and maybe this is a little bit more performative trial, um, which, you know, all trials are performative, in my opinion, but um, a little bit more like, you know, TV trial kind of kind of thing where, you know, like a good prosecutor will like use that use the letters, use the part of the letters that they want to use without having to submit it into evidence, like, Mm -hmm. you know, very sneakily, you know, while because because, you know, for listeners who don't understand the process or aren't familiar with the process enough, if if a if an attorney starts getting a little too like starts getting you know, starts banging on the door or something that may not be allowed, the judge will like excuse the jury and ask them to go into the next room while they like figure their, their shit out as to whether or not they're going to allow this. And so, but like, but still like, like a Mm -hmm. jury can't help, but hear what they hear. And so if like a prosecutor starts talking about the letter, even though like it hasn't been submitted into evidence, they still heard it, you know, regardless of, of whether or or not it's, it's officially on in, in the evidence booklet, it's still like, they still heard the thing. And so that, you know, that sways the jury. Um, And so a good prosecutor or a good attorney will kind of be able to use that to their advantage at the same time or a sneaky one, maybe then maybe not a good one, but a sneaky one. I know a lot of sneaky lawyers too. So, <laughs> so, so at, at a lot of people who I know <laughs> very closely. The, I don't know. This whole case is, is kind of tricky looking at the, okay, it's on video, but then they're like, well, the video was transferred and well, that's questionable, but is that him on video? Is that him on the video doing it? Like where, sure. Where it came from yeah. doesn't matter if that is him on the video. Yeah, so true. Yeah, and and so they're they're you know showing the video to the jury in public in court, um, you know Monday, and so we're we're gonna find out um, when what this all looks like and how it looks and all that stuff and how how legit it looks um, because at the end of the day, right? Like if it looks legit, it doesn't matter. Like the chain of custody doesn't matter, you know, in terms of a jury member, right? Because if they can see that and reasonably assume that that's Brian Smith on that camera, doesn't matter what the chain of custody was, um, because you know, and and I'm assuming what their argument is, is that like because the chain of custody was broken and because there's like the weird things going on with the transfer and all that stuff, um, that it could have been edited at some point or like altered to make it look like whatever. Um, and so that that's I'm assuming is what their argument is in terms of saying that the video could not be tr- can can't be trusted on its own. Um, but if if it looks if it looks like Brian, if, if a reasonable person, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter about the technic, the techniques of, of this whole thing. If a reasonable person can assume that that is Brian on the camera, that's enough to lock someone away. At least it would be for me. I, I, th- I really hope this isn't the first case that's going to try to use like AI video editing as, as its defense. I, like well, those, you hear out. about those deep fake videos, but yeah. I don't know how many people, um, know enough to like create those, and a lot of times, like those deep fake videos are just on like shared on the internet. Like, what you have to think about, like, why would somebody create a deep fake video and then save it on an SD card? And that, yeah, like, you know what I mean? It that kind of, and that that'll be like something that like a defense will, yeah, have to explain, you know. Yeah. The defense, if, if that's the route that they're going to go. Yeah. Well, and, and regardless of like, do, do like, does the reason is like a normal person know how to make them? Does a normal person know how to identify one? Because that's what a jury is supposed to be. Is that like, you're just, you're, you know, a collective average group of people. And so does that collective average group of people, can they see that and reasonably assume I'm frankly, I've seen some pretty good deep fake deep fake videos and like there's a lot of them that that you like i am fairly entrenched in that world um 
you know, and so, you know, you know, maybe not fairly, but like, you know, or entrenched, but you know, I'm, I'm fairly, I, I see that stuff fairly often. And I think of myself as like a fairly reasonable person most of the time. Um, and so I, you know, like I would, you know, I, I, there has been a lot of them that, that have fooled me is the point. And so, um, so who knows? I mean, I, I, but, but to your point, like regard, like I'm, who knows if that's what actually happened here, we don't know, but like to your point, y'all, um, that's what they're going to say is that like, uh, presumably anyways, that we are looking at, uh, uh, you know, we, or, or at the very least, we don't know if we're looking at a D a deep fake video and an AI generated video. We just don't know. If the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt, I mean, yeah, an average person probably can't make that an average person probably can't identify that. But I mean, if you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that is him, like that's, that's a hard burden of proof for the state. Right. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Well, well, yeah. And the burden of proof is on them at the end of the day to prove that they, that, you know, that they can, you know, safely say that that's Brian. So yeah, I don't know. It's going to be, that's going to be tricky. That, I mean, again, that is like the first time I've seen that in a murder trial. And just on the other side of this break, we have three missing persons cases that need your attention right now. Those cases are making headlines. Crime Over Wine is sponsored by BetterHelp. As someone who's used therapy for years, I know that finding a therapist can sometimes be a stress on its own, juggling your full-time job, your family, your friends, your podcast, and trying to find the right therapist on top of that can almost feel impossible. That's where BetterHelp comes in. BetterHelp matches you with a therapist that works for you on your terms. It's online, it's remote, and by filling out a few questions, BetterHelp can match you to one of 33,000 licensed professional therapists in as little as a few days. And because finding a new therapist is a lot like finding a new bottle of wine, if you don't jive with your therapist, you can easily switch to a new one at no additional cost. You can get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp by going to betterhelp.com slash crimeoverwine. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crime over wine for 10% off your first month. Join over 4 million people who decided to get help and get happy with BetterHelp. Okay, the case um, I'm about to tell you all about isn't a typical missing persons case. Investigators need your help filling in the details about a cold case homicide victim's final moments or years even. This goes all the way back to 2001 when human remains were found at a construction site in the city of Redondo Beach, California. Weren't able to identify the person then and the case went cold. But in January 2019, cold case investigators reopened the case and partnered with the DNA Doe Project. That's a nonprofit that's working with law enforcement across the country to identify missing people. In March 2023, a DNA match was made with two women living in Memphis, Tennessee. Those women turned out to be the daughter and sister of the Jane Doe in California, who was actually Catherine Parker Jones. Catherine was never reported missing. Her family last had contact with her in May of 1981 when she returned home to see her children in Memphis. The last record of any contact with Catherine was August 31st, 1981 in Lenox, California. Catherine's case is an active homicide investigation. If you had any contact with her or have any information, contact Redondo Beach investigator John Skipper at 310-379-2477, extension 3515, or you can email him at john.skipper at redondo.org. You can also email the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation at their you can also email the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation at their confidential tip line, tips to TBI at tbi.in.gov. I worked on a case that was similar um, to to kind of something like this one where this woman, she was also a mom, she went missing, but she was never reported missing. And she had a young son and her son had, he never knew what happened to his mom. Her remains were found, but no one knew who she was. She, she wasn't identified until several years later. She ended up being the victim of a, of a serial killer uh, by the name of Sam Little. 
And um, they were finally able, they finally got like a DNA match and they were finally able to share this son that was now an adult that, you know, he had always thought that his mom just kind of left him and went on with her life mm. and he never knew. And then to give him, you know, these answers that she, she didn't do that. She didn't want to leave him and she didn't willingly, you know, and I, I just kind of get that feeling, you know, that the there's this daughter and this sister of this Jane Doe, you know, that has is now been identified as Catherine. Like it, it really does highlight the importance of, you know, working to figure out what happens so that family members can, you know, know just a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I also have to say, too, because, like, there's all these different, like, you know, organizations now, like Ancestry DNA and 23andMe and all this stuff that, like, you can submit your DNA into. And, you know, and, you know, it, there's, like, a separate, from my understanding, I've never done it myself, but, like, a separate, you know, service that you can, like, accept that to be a part of that will enter yourself into these databases um, and there are like cases that are solved as a result of this. And like, this is just like another one of those examples that like DNA, man, like, you know, just new move the needle, the new DNA, man, just like move the needle just that much more from this family that, you know, and I don't know exactly how this DNA came about, but point being is that like, you know, regardless, like, like, it's just incredible. Like all of these services, all of these, this possibilities um, that are opening doors for these, for these cold cases, and giving people names back, which is incredible. I agree. And while it's not the conclusion, I'm sure that they wanted, if they were wondering where Catherine's been all these years, um, some closure is better than no closure, I would imagine. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right, Liam, um, what case are you going to tell us about? Oh, man. So I have a little bit of a non-traditional case as well. Um, the circumstances um, around the disappearance that I'm going to tell you all about is a little fuzzy and a little strange. And so bear with me here a little bit. But um, this week um, marks 20 years since Daniel Ewan went missing from San Bernardino, California. Daniel was 16 years old when his parents, Lisa and Wayne, got the terrifying call from his school that he left the building to buy cigarettes without any of his belongings and never returned. Just two weeks before, Daniel's parents dropped Daniel off at the private boarding school and headed back home to New Jersey, all the way across the other side of the country. They enrolled Daniel in this private boarding school after he started showing signs of depression, stopped going to school, and started to stay out all night long during his sophomore year at his high school in New Jersey. It wasn't until after Daniel disappeared from this um, boarding school in California that Lisa and Wayne learned the troubling truth about the goings-on at the school, though. The San Bernardino Sun reported in 2009 that at least two other boys who were students at the school ran away under similarly mysterious circumstances, both before Daniel's disappearance, about a decade before. The newspaper also reported that the school had filed for bankruptcy in 2005, a year after anyone had heard or seen from Daniel. The school has since shut down, as reported by ABC 10 in San Diego. In 2018, the private investigator hired by the school actually received a phone call saying that Daniel Ewan was totally fine, didn't want to be found, and that he was at a park near the school that investigators had already searched several times. But to this day, we have not definitively located Daniel. So if you know anything about his disappearance, call the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office at 909-387-8313. I'm kind of wondering if there is like a, if he got maybe caught up in some like a trafficking situation. I don't know. Yeah. So, so, and there's like some other details too that I should probably share with y'all. So like, again, so going back to why, um, why his parents dropped him off at the, or enrolled him in this boarding school. So he had like, so he, there was like something like his girlfriend broke up with him, I, th- I believe. Um, and so after that happened, he started like skipping school. He started, um, you know, um, staying up all night, like going out places and stuff. So he was like showing some like real bad behavioral problems and like possible signs of depression. And so the school that he, that he, that 
his parents enrolled him in was actually like a therapeutic boarding school. Like it's specifically for kids that show these kinds of bad behaviors um, and like to re to rehab them and like, you know, show them that, you know, like show them how to, you know, get, get, you know, beyond like heal from, from those, from those bad behaviors. Um, and so, so point being, and so like, once I learned that I was like, okay, well, like it kind of does make a little bit more sense that like three kids disappeared from the school, like a little bit more, like it's still kind of odd that like none of the three of them have been found certainly. And like, certainly weird that like the school then went bankrupt and shut down like a year later. Um, but so, so it's, it's just odd to me. I guess the circumstances, but I guess it kind of almost makes sense. But still, like, the point being is that, like, like you run off and then it's, you're, like, without any of your belongings and just, like, start over. Just weird. Like, like I don't know. Like, I just, I'd, I'd never believe that anyone's capable of that, let alone a 16-year-old kid, in my opinion. That's why I get kind of the feeling that there might be some sort of, like, a trafficking situation that maybe he was too young to like recognize or understand Mm. Um, because a lot of times in those situations, someone will befriend you and give you everything that you need so that you're completely dependent on them, like a phone and, and clothes and shoes. Think about what is important to a child at, at that age. And then next thing you know, before you know it, depend completely on that person and you can't get out of it. Yeah, and specifically to people who are in positions of authority over like a very vulnerable type of person too. That's that's like mo there. Um, from what from what I understand from those types of situations as well. Mm-hmm. And this really sounds like going back to my other interest of like paranormal stuff. Like I don't know how many of those investigations start at a facility that was a boarding school or shelter for children that had a very similar background and it's like far too i feel like often when you're hearing about something bad happening to children it's through some kind of system they're meant to be safe a boarding school a foster care facility camp for troubled youth or something like that and it's just something about this rubs me the wrong way of oh, there were two other kids, but, like, we kept that under the wraps, and then they went bankrupt, but... And then all of a sudden, this private investigator's getting a call that, oh, he's fine. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that screamed red flag to me, as far as I was concerned. But also, more on that, too, because there was more detail on that story that I was, um, that I was referenced about the, um, the private investigator getting that call, because so, when the private investigator went back to the park that they had, again, searched several times, um, they had like asked around and said, Hey, did anyone see this, this person? And like showed Daniel's picture around and someone there was like, Oh yeah, I just saw them 45 minutes ago. And interestingly enough. And so like, again, this was 14 years later. So Daniel would have been 30 by the time this had happened ish. Um, interestingly enough, the, that person said that Daniel was with a, another Caucasian woman and a child. Um, when they saw him and so that was like that was the most like recent reported sighting is that like apparently he like went off and like and like again this is all like like stranger witness testimony that like hey this random person in the park so like take it as you will but point being is and and also too i have to say you know again talking about biases that we've been talking about this whole episode um you know daniel is an asian man and so i would in in california san Bernardino, california and so it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if like you know whoever and i don't know anything about this person who who said that they who claimed to have just seen him um but it wouldn't necessarily surprise me if it was just some other asian man that like somebody was confusing with them because that um you know does happen quite a bit um also but again that's maybe you know neither here nor there All right, Michelle, what's your case this week? So my case is about a missing person from 40 years ago. This is very interesting. Stay with me until the end of this because I promise it will be worth it. Also, if you aren't already following me on Facebook, Instagram, Michelle Crime Over Wine, like there's a specific picture that I'm going to reference that you are definitely going to want to see. So this centers around a a man by the name of Reeves K. Johnson. He went missing 40 years ago out of Kittery, Maine. He was 31 years old. He was a welder when he went missing in 1983. 
Now, the case grew cold, as you can imagine. Um, A new detective started working on the case about three years ago. He teamed up with a true crime podcast. Uh, And not not this one, obviously, but I think it really highlights the importance of revisiting cases, breathing, you know, a a new breathing some fresh air into cases, giving it a new set of eyes and just some folks to to renew, you know, some interest in cases. Um, Investigators through this new set of eyes and this podcast uh, investigators recently found that Reeves worked as a dishwasher at Borderline Restaurant on Route 1 across from Kittery Trading Post in 1981. And they are now looking for people that worked there around the same time. They're hoping that they can talk to people that will remember Reeves. The restaurant went into foreclosure in 1982. And at other times, the restaurant was known as Dragon Seed and Captain's Table. So you know how sometimes like a place might close down and then it reopens under, you know, maybe some new owners, maybe a different name. So it it seems like that kind of happened in the years surrounding when Reeves went missing. So they're hoping that people that remember this area, remember this restaurant that has been known under different names or been operating under different names. They're hoping that someone might remember him. Now, Reeves was reported missing after his family couldn't get a hold of him for a couple of weeks. Apparently, you know how sometimes, you know, you you get a little bit older, 20s, 30s, and you talk to your family. You know, like some people will, will talk to their family every Sunday. And that's what he did. And when they hadn't talked to him for, you know, two Sundays in a row, they were like, something, something's going on. So that's when they reported him missing. Police went to his cabin. It was a one-bedroom cabin. When they got there, they found the door was open. Most of his belongings were missing and his pipes were frozen. This was, it was in winter. Now, after that happened, his mom, again, this is in, this is in the early eighties. So there were not cell phones. There was not internet. There was, you know, there wasn't anything. So you, you have to really think about that time. His mom was like, well, he's, he's going to have to have money. So she posted up outside of the post office. She was hoping that her son would come and get his check. Well, good thing she did, because someone did arrive. It wasn't her son Reeves. It was an unknown man in a red hat. He had the key to Reeves's mailbox. When the mom confronted the man, he said, oh, Reeves is at an apartment in Portsmouth. And then he took off running. The mom Smart enough. You know, there there is nothing like a mama bear. I will always say that. There is nothing like a mother's instinct. There is nothing like a mama bear. Mom had a camera in her hand. She snapped a picture as the man was taking off. The only distinct feature in that picture is the red hat. We will have the picture all over social media. You need to see it. It's it's like it's like literally the photo of someone that's been caught and is running away. So, um anyway, there is a $6,000 for information leading to Reeves where he may be, you know, to give this family some closure. If you have any information, call Kittery Police in Maine at 207 207- Four three nine sixteen thirty eight, and again, go on social media. Look at that picture. I mean, think about it. Think about the mother that was that thought ahead, thought enough to say, "Well, my my son is is somewhere. He's going to need money at some point. He's going to run out, and he knows that he has a check coming. So I'm I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait because you know a mother that wants answers will have all of the patience in the world, and the fact that she did that." found potentially the person that has some answers as to what happened to her son, because that person showed up with the key, mm-hmm. knew that a check yeah. was coming. And then mama bear knew when she confronted him, knew something new enough to take a picture as the guy's running away. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. M- badass moms for the win. I mean, like mm-hmm. win enough, right? 
man, but also badass podcasters for like getting this reinvigorated 40 years later. Um, because now we're, you know, we're, we're getting places. It sounds like, right. Like, cause now we know where he worked. We know where now we're potentially looking at, at people with, with, you know, potential new information, man, I've got a lot of hope for this one. Y'all. I mean, I've, I, cause I've seen, listen, I've seen cases that are solved with, with longer periods of time that have passed. And so this seems like one of those ones that could be getting there in the same way. I'm excited. Thanks for bringing this one. I'm riveted. Yeah. Like I, I definitely feel that it's like, I feel there's going to be some positive developments here on this, on this one. There are going to be answers. Better be. And yeah, like that mom, I can't imagine the pain, but the determination to stick through that, through the pain. I'm proud of you, mama. Like way to be there for facts. your kid. Yeah. Facts. Also yeah. think of, Think about in the 80s, even think about in the 90s, you know, it is not like any of the cameras like today. You know, you had to snap the picture, then you had to roll the wheel. And then if you (laughs) wanted to take another one, you just snap another one. And then after the 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 roll is full, you take it to the store to go get it developed and you drop it off and, and it comes back a week later. Could you imagine, like, to have this evidence and to be like, oh, oh my gosh, I have to wait. I have to wait for it to be developed. Like, it's not mm. like now where you pull out your iPhone and you swipe really quick and you can snap as many photos as you want. Yeah. And ship them off instantly. Yeah. So true. Yeah, man. Okay. Wait, can Michelle, can you, can you share that number again one more time? Because I have a feeling that we're going to like, like there was somebody out there, maybe they may or may not be listening to, um, to this podcast right now, but there's somebody out there who, 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 you know, can real provide some real good information here. And that's what I love about podcasts. So this, again, this case is out of Kittery, Maine. The number to the Kittery, Maine Police Department is 207-439-1638. Man, what, we had some action-packed cases this episode, y'all. I am proud. Episode two is popping. What, what would you expect out of three people that are like newsies and true crime lovers and also like wine lovers. Like, I mean, did you expect anything different? That's why, you know, like, that's why I am so happy that y'all are a part of this crazy ride that I'm on um, now, because I know that y'all are going to take these cases and follow up and keep everyone updated. Um, And so, you know, same, same as I would. Um, And so I'm really, really glad. I'm really, really glad that we are, you know, in a place where, you know, we can, we can do some good and, around these cases that are again you know rolling out right now you know and and cases that y'all could make a difference in right now again if you're in the kittery main area i mean it feels like somebody knows something up there at some point again and like this is like a classic example of a case i think that um that you know like the smallest piece of information that could seem so minuscule and you know minor to you could be the thing that breaks this thing wide open and sets it in in a totally new direction. And so again, if you know absolutely anything, I mean, it it feels like you have, you have to call in and say something regardless of how small it may feel. We are so happy that you guys have been listening. If you can't get enough of crime over wine, follow all of us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are posting throughout the week and we keep you updated. We'll see you next Sunday for the next episode of Crime Over Wine Weekly. We'll see you this Wine Wednesday for your regularly scheduled episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.